Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. Welcome to a special holiday edition of Mets Musings. I'm Gary Mack, your host. And what I'm doing for you, a little special extra Christmas gift. And that's an interview I did about two years ago with the 1972 Rookie of the Year member of the Mets Hall of Fame, three-time All-Star Mr. John Matlack. It was a great interview. I had a lot of fun doing it, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. So until next time, remember, have a great holiday season. I'll see you in 2023. Keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go, Mets. And now to John Matlack. I'm really excited about this week's guest, everybody. He is a three-time, or was a three-time All-Star in National League All-Star. He was also the 1972 National League Rookie of the Year. And also, if we have a baseball season, I don't know what's going to happen, but he is the one of the 2020 inductees into the New York Mets Hall of Fames. He is John Matlock. John, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Gary. Um. Congratulations on being, uh, you know, elected uh, or however they word it into the Mets Hall of Fame. It's a terrific honor and uh, long overdue. Well, it is a terrific honor, and it was somewhat surprising, and it was an, an election, as I understand it. I'm not sure who all votes, but I got a call uh, actually day after my birthday in January um, from Jeff Wilpon and letting me know the news, and it was pretty exciting. Yeah, it it it's got to be uh, just terrific to go into a team's uh, the, the team's Hall of Fame because that means to me it means it mean a lot to the fans and to the team itself and and you accomplish something great there. Well, I, I'm not sure <laughs> about the, the greatness of my accomplishments, but I certainly had a great time playing there. Uh, it was. Uh, a good place to play was well respected and well treated by the fans, and, and uh, certainly something that I'm going to be very proud of going forward. Now, so uh, you're drafted as a uh, 17-year-old high school player, um, and um, if I remember correctly, I read somewhere that you were shocked that there were even scouts following you. Well, I, in my junior year is when. Scouts started showing up, and, and I was so oblivious in the small little <laughs> Pennsylvania town that, that I grew up in that I didn't know what was going on. I saw these guys with clipboards and stopwatches behind the backstop when we would be playing, and I finally asked our coach one day, I said, who are, who are these guys with this stuff they're carrying around? And he said, oh, they're scouts. And I, I said, what's a scout? I didn't know what a scout was. And uh, so he proceeded to tell me that they were representing major league clubs and they were looking for talent and all that kind of stuff. And right. my next question was, well, who are they looking at? Yeah. 
and uh, he said, well, they're looking at you, and they're looking at the catcher, and they're looking at the second baseman and the center fielder. We had four or five pretty pretty quality guys on our club, mm-hmm. and uh, so the scouts were, were drawn by numerous people, as I understand it. But that that's sort of my introduction to, to pro baseball or how you would get to pro baseball. It was always something I dreamt about growing up, but had no idea how you got from here to there. <laughs> and what what team were you a fan of growing up as a kid? Uh, I, I grew up outside of Philly, about 40 miles, so mm-hmm. I was sort of uh, in tune with what the Phillies were doing. Um, didn't really watch a whole lot of baseball because I was always busy playing it. Right. But uh, I did try and watch if, if Sandy Koufax was ever pitching on television because he was my guy and... I was able to see a few of his games on TV and uh, always aspired to sort of follow in his footsteps. And I imagine that's why you won number 32 in in, uh, in honor of uh, Sandy Koufax? You're pretty quick on the update. You sure are. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, I go back as far as Koufax does too, so I, I uh, remember certain things like that. So you get drafted by the Mets, and uh, you go into the farm system. Your first year wasn't the best. It was a struggle. Well, my first year was just a a blink because (laughs) due to the regulations or agreement, I guess, they had between Major League Baseball and American Legion Baseball, I got drafted in June. I think it was June 7th. And there was an agreement that until your – American Legion season was complete, Major League Baseball would not try and sign a drafted player. Well, we couldn't lose. We played until somewhere in early (laughs) August uh, before I was ever able to negotiate and sign and then was subsequently sent to to Williamsport, which was double A in the Eastern League, way over my head, but I think they only did it because it was close to home. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I had very rough sledding for a couple of starts trying to figure out how to get double-A hitters out. It was not easy. Well, and that's quite a shock going from uh, American Legion ball into double-A right away. Now now they would never hear doing anything like that. <laughs> well, probably not. And, and I don't know. It might still happen just for expediency's sake. I was only right. there. I don't know, probably wasn't more than two and a half, three weeks, um, and then sent immediately to instructional league for the remainder of the fall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you come up in 71, uh, you struggled then, but really 72 was when you came up for the full season. Well, 15 and 10 with a 2.32 ERA and uh, win the uh, uh, National League Rookie of the Year. That must have been quite a thrill. Uh, it, it was, um, no doubt. And, and again, it, this was something that I didn't even know was in existence. Um, so somewhere in the, the August time frame, I would have a writer or two ask me about the Rookie of the Year award, and not to sound dumb, I just sort of tried to play it off like <laughs> I didn't really know much about it. But yeah. you know, whatever was going to be was going to be, and I had to do some quick research because I didn't know what it was all about. Um, but I was fortunate enough to, to win that, and uh, it was a very nice um, honor, obviously, and uh, certainly I'm certainly I'm proud of that. We come into 73, and, of course, that was the year 
that uh, it seemed nobody wanted to win the NL East. Well, take us through that year a little bit. And did you guys think you could win it that year? And, uh, you know, uh, how did you hold it all together? Well, I, I don't know that we held anything together until the tail end. <laughs> It was a very strange year, to say the least, and I think, I may be wrong, but I think every team in the division was in first place at some time or another during the season. Wow. Um, and we managed to take it to our turn when it, it counted most right at mm -hmm. the end. Um, how it all happened, I can't begin to tell you. I just know that uh, somewhere mid to late August, uh, we started to play more like a ball club, and Everybody contributed, whatever was needed, whoever happened to be in that role at the time seemed to step up and get it done, and uh, we came from a long ways back to end up winning it by just a little bit, and uh, I guess that's all that matters. That's all that counts, yeah. And and uh, really, I mean, that was a pretty good ball club. I mean, I don't think people give it credit when you, when you look through that, that ball club, how good it really was. In looking back, I got to agree with you. There was a lot of quality players there. Um, I think there were some uh, health factors, injury factors that, that played into the overall season. Had everybody been healthy all season long and through the playoffs and series, uh, things may have been a little bit different. But uh, that didn't happen, and, and things ended the way they did. Yeah. Um, you get to the playoffs, and what kind of a thrill was that as a second-year guy and, and uh, you were in the playoffs and then you, you beat the mighty Cincinnati Reds, you go into the World Series and you play in the Oakland A's. Take us through that a little bit, how the feeling was. And you started game one, by the way. Yeah, it was a little bit daunting, to say the least, uh, to be headed into that kind of territory, especially as a, as a 23-year-old and a second-year player. Um, but I just went about it like I did most of my other games, one step at a time, one pitch at a time, one out at a time, tried to do the best I could every time I walked out there. And um, hopefully that was going to be good enough. And in some instances it was. And the, the last one it wasn't. Well, <laughs> um yeah, game seven was a tough call. Now, did you pitch that on short rest, or were you, you pitched on three days rest, I think. Was that short in those days? or It, it was. Um, we had done it occasionally. If I don't know, a doubleheader, you run into something weird during the season. There might have been one or two other times when we came back on, on early rest. Um, but when it came to the series, it was uh, three days throughout. For for I pitched one, four, and seven, and the way the schedule was, that was that fell on the fourth day, not the fifth day. Uh, and and you can make of that what you will. I don't know that it entered into it all that much. Uh, I didn't feel fatigued. Um, when it comes right down to it, I just I had Campaneros hit a good pitch that ended up being mm -hmm. a home run. The wind helped it a little bit, but he still had to hit it. Right. Uh, and then I, I hung a curveball to uh, to Reggie that uh, you or most other people would probably hit out. So, <laughs> Well, I don't know. He, but... <laughs> did, he, he did what he was supposed to do with that one, and that was just a, a mistake on my part. Well, you know, Reggie's hit a few in his lifetime. <laughs> just a couple. Just, just a couple. <laughs> Now, um, 
we talked about some of the guys on that team that you played with. Um, any of them stand out to you as uh, that were inspirational to you, or that uh, were uh, you know that you became especially close with? I mean, when you think about it, you, you know, you had Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman on that staff, and you, uh, Felix Mion, terrific second baseman. And, um, of course, you had an iconic hero on there, though, granted, he was at the end of his career. Um, Willie Mays, can you speak about any of those guys at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, Willie was an icon, and <clears throat> even though the, the physical talent may have diminished somewhat at that point in his career, uh, his instincts and mental approach to the game were top-notch and was certainly somebody that you could – um, just watch and learn from by the way he went about his business. And, uh, I mean, he had a, a knack for watching the trajectory of a pitch as it went to the plate. And if it looked like it was going to short hop the catcher, he was already a step and a half to second base. Wow. Uh, even though he wasn't fast, he had the instincts to know when the catcher was going to have a difficult time handling a ball and made it more times than not just based on that. Um, just a great guy to have around and, and certainly watched out for me as a younger guy uh, in terms of, uh, you know, if I was pitching the next day, he, he was one of the first ones as we were leaving the clubhouse to uh, mentor me on being sure to get enough mm -hmm. rest and all that good stuff. Right. right. Uh, no no uh, prima donna in him at all, being that he was such a huge star? Not that I saw. No. I mean, he... Mm -hmm. As a player and with teammates, he was just one of the guys. Great to have around. Yeah. Um, Ed Cranepool is another guy that, that, that you played with who's been around as long as dirt, I think, <laughs> as far as the Mets are concerned. <laughs> no, no, Crane was actually a, a roomie for a couple of years, and, and we got to be uh, very close. Haven't, unfortunately, haven't talked to him in a, in a little while now, but uh, <clears throat> it was certainly good to have around and knew his way around the city and, and helped me a bunch with acclimating to being in the metropolitan area, uh, which was good. Um, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, they put my locker right in between the two of them. So I couldn't have been oh in a better goodness. spot there um, in terms of getting any information that might have been needed from game to game as, as far as uh, psychology, uh, eating and physical training habits came from Seaver and, and that type of stuff. And, and Kuzman and I talked at length about how to pitch to various guys in different teams. And because we had similar stuff, and we would share tidbits back and forth. And he was a tremendous help as well. Was that intimidating at all, being in a locker room between those two guys? Well, it started out being a little bit that way, but uh <clears throat> It didn't last that long. I mean, I, I pitched well enough early enough that uh, I don't know if they counted me as an equal, but they looked at me as somebody who could certainly help the ball club, and therefore they were going to help me, and that was a benefit. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, now it's a shame the uh, battle that Tom Seaver's having with his health issues, um, the Alzheimer's and, and all of that sort of thing, and, and uh, just a shame that it's came to that. No question. I couldn't say it better. And by the way, yeah, Ed Cranepool is doing quite well. Um, he, you know, he had his operation, and uh, he is doing pretty terrific. He's all over the place again. He was down in Florida, I heard, and 
so that, that's good to see. Well, it's nice. You can't keep Crane down. <laughs> He's a very nice guy. Um, I've been trying to get him on the show. I've talked to him a number of times, but I've never gotten him on the show. So, um, But I keep working on it. One of these days, I'll get him. <laughs> One of these days, you'll get it done, I'm sure. <laughs> and, of course, then, then the Mets struggled the next few years that you were there. And um, you were there in uh, 77 for the Midnight Massacre. You're still with the team. And uh, what was that? that time you know that uh that specific time that june when uh this was all going down did the players have any idea that that tom was going to get traded or did it come as a complete shock to everybody you knew he wasn't happy he wanted an extension and of course there was the whole thing with m donald grant and dick young uh can you take us through that a little bit from your point of view well, you knew a little bit about what was going on. Tom wasn't too open about it uh, at the time. I think more of it came out in the press after the fact. But uh, we were aware of some of the tension between he and, and Donald Grant and especially between he and Dick Young. Uh, but I at least was not aware of the closeness between M. Donald Grant and Dick Young. So mm-hmm. how much influence. Uh, Dick Young may have had in all of this, I'm not really sure, but probably more than I thought at the time. Um, and, you know, you wondered what was going to come out of it, but I was certainly shocked when the trade took place. Um, you know, even more shocked as they continued to clean house and got rid of all three of us in the span of a year. Right, right. Yeah, and then, and, and Kingman was gone, and... and uh... In the span of the year, and you, as you said, you went to to uh, Texas in a trade in '78. Um, no, what was December? It was December '77 that I left, okay. and 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 Cousy was in in June, I think, of or sometime during '78. So, virtually within a, a year's period of time, all three of us were somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And what was it like going to uh, Texas after being in New York and? Uh, uh, you know, drafted by them and everything, getting traded. What was you were traded in the off season? So did that make it a little easier on you? I think maybe, but it was still a complete and total shock, uh, culture shock, change, uh, realization that this is a business more so than a sport. Um, you know, and I guess he always thought about it that way. But until you were summarily shipped off to some other ball club. Uh, for some other goods, <laughs> you didn't yeah. really have the the true meaning of of what that business was like, um, and it I don't know I guess it was the kiss of death. I was told um, <clears throat> superstitiously that uh, getting the house and fixing it up was not the thing you should do, and literally it was a three year program that we had been on fixing up this older house that we bought. Uh, and the day we finished the last project, I was in the basement cleaning paintbrushes where we had finished painting a screened-in porch um, when I got the call that I had been traded. So <laughs> the superstition <laughs> came true. <laughs> and um, um, you stayed with uh, Texas until 83. Um, did you enjoy your time there? Was it – I mean uh, – you know, it wasn't a, a winning team, I don't believe, at that time. 
Um, and and what did you find different in the American League from the National League? Well, the leagues were definitely different. You know, you had the designated hitter, and um, uh, at that time, a completely different strike zone because the umpires were wearing the outside chest protectors down there, and the strike zone was higher. Uh, I had to make uh, quite a few adjustments as, as far as that was concerned, and, and you also had the uh, not the easy spot in the lineup. Not that every hitter was easy in the National. I'm sorry, every pitcher was easy in the National League, but. Uh, in the American League, you weren't facing any of them, so there was always another bat in there that you had to contend with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was different. Uh, being in Texas as opposed to New York, um, for at least half of our games, uh, the heat became a factor in, right. in trying to figure out how to deal with the Texas heat over the course of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> there were there were some differences for sure. <laughs> And um, I, the heat is is usually the big thing down there, right? A lot of people have to get used to it. Now they built a new stadium that uh, was supposed to open this year, and uh, um, that's got a, a roof on it. But that's that's the big thing that they talk about a lot when they go when people go to Texas. Well, it, it became a an issue, I think, probably more so for the everyday players um than for starting pitchers but i think it was an issue for me as well i ended up uh, I, I played all my years in new york at about 195 pounds maybe bumped it to 200 at, at times um and that's where i felt comfortable in, in that climate and environment and in texas i ended up putting on probably eight or ten more pounds uh to literally have something else as a background right. to, to, to sweat out and still have some uh, stamina left. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if it happened all the time, but I remember one game I ended up pitching down there. It was over 100 when we started the game. It was a day game. And I ended up pitching all nine innings. The game still was not complete. <laughs> we ended up going extra innings. Uh, but I lost 11 pounds from start to wow. finish in that ball game. Wow, that's something. And that you know nowadays you don't see that even the <laughs> the complete games the whole the game has changed so much nowadays. Oh no question, uh, the, the roles are totally different. The starting pitchers were uh, expected to go minimum of seven back in my day, and then everybody was mad if they came to get you before the game was over. Right. So it was your job to go out there and stay out there. Uh, today the starters seem to have a role of you know, two times through the lineup or somewhere around five, maybe six innings, uh, the better ones will roll a little farther than mm-hmm. that. But then they go to the specialty guys in the bullpen and, and try and lock it down if they've got a lead. And that's just the way the game has evolved. Right. Um, you uh, retired in, in 83, and uh, uh, four years later you came back to the game in 87, I guess it was, with the uh, San Diego Padres as a coach. Was that something that you wanted to get involved with in coaching, or did it just happen to fall into your lap? Well, it, it was not something that I initially looked at, but the more I was away from the game and would watch it on television with my son who was growing up at that point, um, noticed that there were things I'm seeing in big league games that I didn't think – should have been part of those games and should have been taught guys before they got to the big leagues. And I finally decided that, you know what, I've got something to offer to these guys that are coming up in the system and talked to my wife and said, look, we're not going to get rich doing this, but I want to go back and coach. 
and she was on board with that. And it was actually '88 that I started back with the uh, with the Padres and and coached from there right straight through to through 2012 in varying roles with different organizations. Um, is that something that you'd like to get back into again, or are you uh, happy with what you're doing now? What I'm doing now is talking to guys on the phone once in a while about <laughs> what I used to do, <laughs> and, that, and that suits me just fine. Not, not that I wouldn't mind a, a coaching role somewhere, but I don't think in today's environment uh, I would be afforded the opportunity to, to do a job as much as I would be told how to do it, and I don't think I can work under that basis. It seems that's the way that it's going nowadays. Um, you know, I had uh, had a little acquaintance with the former uh, Brooklyn Cyclones coach and uh, pitching coach, and uh, I, he used to say they get they get word from the front office that uh, this guy's going three innings and. You know, and it, and it kind of disappoint. I kind of understand it, but I also, you know, kind of disappoints the fan from a fan point of view because you'd want to see a, a high draft pick pitch a little bit more. Well, you would hope that guys that are capable of a, developing into somebody who who could potentially uh, allow the other members on the pitching staff a rest once in a while that you would allow those guys to develop that way. Yeah. Uh, everybody is sort of developed in a, in a pigeonhole kind of category where that 100-pitch mark is some kind of golden rule that you don't go beyond, or if you do, it's only a couple of pitches beyond. And most everybody's sticking to that. Uh, and there's now a new one that shows that if uh, a starting pitcher has seen the lineup twice, he can't figure out how to get him out the third time, so we can't let him go out there. Uh, no matter what's going on, he might not have enough pitches to have his day complete, but he's going to go through them the third time, and heaven knows bad things are going to happen if that happens. So right. yeah, I, I, that And that comes in large part from not allowing them to develop as pitchers by telling them what to do. You don't let them have any responsibility for the mistakes that they make mm-hmm. or any benefit from the right decisions that they make. So they haven't learned uh, how to deal with adversity and circumstance. They've simply learned how to follow a game plan that's been given to them. Um, And I I think that if you take that away, give them the information, let them pitch the way they feel is appropriate that given day, how the ball feels in their hand, et cetera. um, You're going to find guys developing more. The human factor is back into the game. Right. And, there's going to be a lot of pitchers that are very capable of getting guys out the third and fourth time through the lineup um, because they've figured out how to play chess at 90 miles an hour instead of simply following a game plan that everybody knows exists. And when did this transition into this? I mean, do you think it was the the um, the large money coming in that, that brought about a lot of this, or was it more – the more of the collegiate player and we can't push them as much because they just played a season. I mean, where, where do you think this all came in? Cause it just seems it's probably been over a number of years, but to a lot of fans, it just seems so sudden, you know what I'm saying? Um, when do you feel this came into play? Well, when, when Billy Bean started with the uh, 
statistical analysis of, mm-hmm. of how to put together a ball club. That's probably where it started in earnest. I think there's probably little bits of it here and there previous, but now everybody was in a race to figure out whose computer was better and which algorithm was better. And, um, we're going to find out that, uh, you know, we get enough statistical data. We're going to find out that at, at 210 on a Tuesday afternoon <laughs> with partially cloudy skies, if you throw a slider to Miguel Cabrera, he's going to hit a ground ball to second base 80% of the time. So that's how the game is played nowadays. So you've taken the thought process away from the pitcher rather than giving him data about tendencies and um, what guys are apt to do in, in given situations and allowing them to implement that information. You're telling them in, in large part, this is how we're going to go about it. And that takes all the benefit and responsibility o- away from them and puts it on the guy who's told them how to do it. Right. And they simply look they simply look at, at the stats and say, here, the stats said this should have worked. If it didn't work, it's not my fault. Yeah. So nobody takes, nobody takes the blame anywhere. Nobody takes it. And, I mean, you don't even see pitchers charting games anymore. I mean, that that's like a past thing because they get all of this information. I guess they figure they don't need that. Well, that, that's very true. There's, there's so much more information that it's probably overwhelming in, in a lot of respects. Um, I still think it's beneficial for the next day pitcher to be uh, involved in charting somehow. It doesn't have to be the meticulous stuff that they do nowadays with spin rate and velocity and all that good stuff. But if you simply go with sequencing and location and, and keep some kind of a record, you're paying close enough attention. You see exactly what's going on with that given lineup. It may not be against the same stuff that you're going to feature, but you see what guys are doing in real time right now that you might be able to utilize to your benefit mm-hmm. the next day when you go out there. And by not having that information and simply following a game plan, I just it, it's more physical against physical and, and whether you can outstuff somebody rather than uh, figuring a way through sequencing and location to get what I call friendly contact, uh-huh. let your defense let your defense do some work, and hopefully get outs on on you know six pitches, eight pitches during the course of an inning, as opposed to having to try and outstuff them and throw twenty. Right. Now you played in an era where you played with a uh, a ton of uh, Hall of Famers. Um, who was the toughest one for you to face? Well, see, everybody wants to ask me that question. As soon as I name, as soon as I name one name, I've made fifty other guys angry. So I can't say that I can really do that. What I did going into any given game was try and pick however many guys there might have been in that lineup. Two, three could have been as many as five. Mm-hmm. That if the game, if the game's on the line. I'm not going to let this guy beat me. I'm going to be, um, it's not overly cautious, but I'm going to be on my best to try and make him hit my pitch rather than play challenge baseball in that situation because he's liable to be equal to the challenge. So that was uh, probably the way I I tried to approach that. And it paid off in a lot of instances. Uh, A lot of good hitters got their hits off of me, and a lot of times they were, in non K 
count situations. Uh, you know, the double that didn't drive in any runs. That he can have that all day long. That's okay. Um, now back to your question. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna name one guy that okay. you may or may not have heard of that was a backup catcher in Montreal that beat me to death one year. I think he was seven for eleven or something like that, and I couldn't get him out. I tried to knock him down. I threw him everything but the kitchen sink. His name was John Bacabella. Bacabella. Sure. <laughs> well, that's funny how that works out. Uh, you know, that, that it's a backup catcher that gives you a hard time. But um, what was it like to face uh, uh, Pete Rose or uh, or Johnny Bench, some, somebody like that? I mean, Pete Rose was had to be a pain in the neck to get out. Pete was a tough out. There, there's no question. He uh, usually got a piece of the ball. You rarely were going to strike him out. Um, so the, the the test really was to try and keep him in a situation where his aggressive approach and swings would lead to contact that would be at somebody. So if you could figure a way to <clears throat> make a pitch in sequence with another one that based on previous swing would indicate that you know you may get this ball hit to the shortstop mm -hmm. or if I take a little bit off it he may get under it and, and loft a fly ball to the outfield those types of things where you're looking for a softer hit ball not that Pete had everything soft but you know not something that he's going to be able to square up and hit a line drive somewhere and and that's the best way to approach him for me mm -hmm. uh, and certainly certainly not a guy that you wanted to walk and put on base because he was going to be a, a nightmare on the bases. Um, and, and Bench was a guy that I tried to keep him from extending his arms. Um, I tried to be as, as inside as often and as hard as possible um, so that uh, he couldn't get the, hopefully couldn't get the fat part of the bat to the ball where it could stay fair. And that worked fairly well. And now what was it like throwing at Jerry Cody, a uh, Grody? Oh, Groats was great. Uh, he, he could be a royal pain in the neck because um, <laughs> he was a really a staunch competitor uh, and a lot of times would take that out on you if you weren't doing the best that you could do. Um, but I, I loved the way he called the game. I loved the way he caught the game and um, was certainly a, a great guy to have on your side when you're out there trying to beat somebody. Now, Ed Cranepool has a picture of him and Roberto Clemente, uh, and he's handing him a baseball, and he said it was the final hit of uh, Clemente's career. And uh, I believe that you were the pitcher of that game. I was the pitcher, no question about that. I had when I got into the coaching ranks, that gave me instant recognition with the Latin ball players. <laughs> they, they, would hear, they would hear my name and say, oh, you the guy. <laughs> so it was sort of funny. But no, I, I was, again, a, an oblivious rookie late in the, my rookie season trying to win a ball game, having a tough day. We were getting beat. Um, I tried to make a pitch with a curveball that when it left my hand, I knew was going to be a ball. And I was sort of upset with myself because it wasn't even going to be a strike. I didn't think he was even going to offer at it. And uh, he took his usual big stride and kept his hands back. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes the bat. <laughs> and he, he managed to reach out there and hook this thing into left center field for a double. 
And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, damn, that's a pretty good piece of hitting. And the place goes crazy. There were only, I don't know, 13, 14,000 people there, but everybody's cheering and they're handing him the ball. And I can't understand what this is all about until I see the 3,000 flashing on the scoreboard uh-huh. and then my light bulb went on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always nice to have one claim to fame, even if it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody had to do it. And look, you've got a World Series win. Nobody, you know, not too many people could say that. Well, I, I trade one for the other. That's okay. And yeah. if I got to be tied to uh, tied to a guy for that reason, I couldn't be tied to a, a classier, better ball player than that one. Do you think we're going to have a baseball season this year? Oh my golly, I, I honestly do not know. This is uh, some really unreal and scary times. Uh, I'm certainly glad that they have called things off when they did, and, and hopefully we can get this bug taken care of and put behind us, and, and everything can go back to normal as, as soon as possible. But hopefully that won't be too soon because this does seem like it's a, a nasty bug, and don't wish it on anybody. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, John, I want to thank you so much. This has been a real joy and a real pleasure, and uh, I it, I just enjoyed it so much. <laughs> I just uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Not a problem. I enjoyed it too. It's always good to talk shop.